Hey guys, this is our podcast at the Clemson Foothills Church. We're glad you found us. Join us as we discover what the Bible says about following Jesus, loving God, and serving one another. Feel free to visit our website at clemsonfoothills.com or check out the Clemson Foothills Church YouTube channel. We love learning what God says to us in His Word, and we hope this podcast helps you to do that as well. With all that said, let's dive into the episode for this week. Good morning. We're going to start today. Uh, We have a new series that we're going to be going through for the next month or so we're going to be digging into the book of Ruth and some of you may be saying you didn't even know there was a book of Ruth you didn't know that 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 existed Um, that's okay we're going to dig through it you can be opening your Bibles um, to the book of Ruth right now it's in the Old Testament right after Judges so if you're going through the Torah and then Joshua Judges and then Ruth it's a little book in there And we're going to be digging into that today. But before we do that, um, we really need to get into a a different kind of headspace. And um, again, as I've said over the past few weeks, um, there are some benefits to having church sitting right here in your living room or your kitchen or wherever you are, uh, because you can kind of spread out. You can get some notes out. And I think you're going to really need to do that today because we're going to have to get ourselves into a place where we're looking at the big picture of God's story first. But before we jump into that, um, let's pray, and we will then move back into the book of Ruth. Father, thank you. Thanks so much uh, for um, the ability uh, to get together, to, uh, to talk about your word, to sing together. Uh, God, you don't need us all in one place to hear us and be pleased with us. Thanks so much for that. Thanks for your goodness. Thanks for your grace and mercy. Uh, Father, you know um, this area is just a hurting area, Father, and uh, just with tornadoes that have gone through uh, Seneca, we do know that you're working powerfully, Father, and and we we know that you're loving people more than we love people. Please strengthen us um, to love as a church, to love people the way you love us, Father, I pray that we are mobilized and serving, uh, and please use us to proclaim your gospel uh, in words and in how we live, Father. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the book of Ruth, big picture. Okay, so we're getting, you know, again, we got to get into a different kind of headspace. This isn't just reading this little book. The book of Ruth isn't some little snippet off to the side of God's story, all right, so we gotta, we really need to see this big picture, okay? And here's the big picture, all the way from the beginning. When you have your Bible, whether it's, you know, your app or your paper Bible or whatever it is, you have um, God's story written down, all right? His story through the beginning of the church, uh, from the beginning of time until his church began and until churches started being planted through the first century, all right? Um, We are still a part of this story. This story is continuing. The end of the Bible is teaching us about uh, the the future of our story of being together with God. So hopefully you remember that. What you're doing today, what you've done this week, and how we'll live in the weeks to come um, really depends in many cases, on 
Um, understanding we are a part of this story that's continually unfolding now all the way at the beginning um, here's what God was trying to do this is what he wanted to do this was his plan his plan was you know we were messed up we had fallen into sin we needed to be saved all right and so he put into um, effect a plan to come and rescue me and you and that plan was going on for thousands of years before Jesus even came to earth, all right? And so um, he, he even shares with David, um, and you can look at this in, in uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. You don't have to turn there now. Just I would encourage you, just write notes, go back and look into these things. But in 2 Samuel 7, um, one of the things that God reveals to David is that the future king, the future Messiah, the Savior, will actually come through his family bloodlines, okay? And so that was a promise way back when, way, way back when uh, really you had your early kings in Israel. And so this was promised to David. Now, something to keep in mind as we dig in uh, to this part of the Bible is there something really interesting about God? And I hope we understand this because it's really encouraging. From the beginning, God seemed to always stack the deck against himself, all right? There was never a time when God wanted to be explained by natural phenomenon, okay? So what do I mean by that? Um, way back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he shared with the Israelites um, he said he chose them as his people because he loved them, not because there were so many of them, because they were actually the smallest. They were the fewest, okay? And it's God's way of saying, listen, this is going to happen not with the most mighty group of people, not with the largest country or the most powerful army. It's this small group of people, and God says that he made a promise with them. And he's going to follow through with that promise, okay? And so then we move on to 2 Samuel 7 that we just talked about. Again, that promise um, to David that the Messiah will be in his bloodline. And then if you want to look at Micah chapter 7, same thing. God said, listen, you can put your hope in these promises that I'm giving you. All right? You can go ahead and do that. They are happening. So there's a side of it for us to take a deep breath and go, we are in the midst right now. We are surrounded by God's story and his plan. And I want you to take a second and think, where do you fit into that story? Just take a deep breath and think, you know, how am I fitting into this cosmic story um, that has taken place from the beginning of everything, this plan that hasn't changed? So back when God was talking to David and telling him, you'll be king and your line will produce the Messiah, all right, that was still the same plan as we have today, which is God um, wanting everyone to be with him. Okay, everyone to be filled with him, to love him, to share his gospel so that everyone can be with him for eternity. That's still the same plan. We're still a part of that story. What I like to do is begin um, reading in the book of Ruth, because like I said, we want to we start out with, with the big picture, right? The 30,000 foot view. If you're, if you're flying in a plane and you're looking down from 30,000 feet, you see a whole lot. And we want to start with that as this story from beginning to end of God saving his people and God making these plans work out, okay? But here's another, here's something else that I think is going to really help us. Before we start reading Ruth chapter 1, 
I think it's really important for us to read the end of the book of Judges. So that book of Judges is right there, right next to Ruth. And I want you to follow me here. It's one verse, Judges 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever he wanted. All right. Why is that important? We're painting a picture. The story of Ruth takes place in the time of Judges. Okay. It's really important to understand what the lay of the land was. What was Israel like? What did God's people look like? Because I think it's very easy for us to get a false sense of, 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 of understanding of God's people. We expect everything to be clean and neat and tidy or God won't work. Okay. And what we see in this 300 year period of history of the judges ruling Israel, we see a mess. All right, we see an absolute mess of sin and rebellion, and then they come back to God, and God brings them back, and then they fall back into sin, and they start worshiping other gods. You're familiar with some of the judges, Samson and Gideon, Deborah. You're familiar with some of these, even if you're not familiar with the entirety of the book. But these are the times that they're living in, this time of chaos, this time of disorder. Okay, And it's really interesting because there are themes that run through the Bible where God reminds us he takes things from chaos and disorder, right? To to order, to plan, to clarity, all right? He's the God that does this, okay? And then I want you to actually go to the last chapter of Ruth, four whole chapters, all right, later. Ruth chapter 4. And it's important that we read this uh, to give us an idea of why this book is so important. So Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. Just a little snippet. Write it down. Think through this because here's what happens. This is the end of the story. The neighbor women said, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Okay, why is that important? All right, is at the end of this story, Naomi um, has a child who becomes King David. It's King David's grandfather. All right, we see the line coming through. And we're going to piece these the, the pieces together as we read this, but it's really important because if we read the book of Ruth out of context, we forget why this is so amazing. We, we lose out on these amazing principles of God when we lose sight of this idea that at the beginning of Ruth is chaos and disorder and insecurity. And at the end, there's this hope of no, the Messiah's line is safe. And the Messiah's line is actually going through this young lady that no one would ever have thought uh, the, the mechanism that God would use. So I want to start out with that. But now we're going to read in chapter 1, and we're going to read through the entire chapter. It's very short, uh, but I think it's important. Uh, that we get this idea of reading through. So Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They entered the land of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband Elimelech died and she was left with her two sons. 
Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah. The second was named, was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about 10 years, both Malon and Chilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to leave the land of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. She said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. No, they said to her, we will go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you. Don't persuade me to go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? She said, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the land of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Whew, man, there's a lot there. Why is it important? One of the things I'm going to ask you to do is, when we're done here today is to go back and read through the chapter. Here's why. When we're talking about God's story, when we're talking about the big picture and now zooming in to this book of Ruth right here, we get a lot of information thrown at us that for me and you, if we're living here in the United States, some of this information just goes over our head. And if we don't have the information, it's very difficult for us to connect on a heart level. All right, and that, don't ever forget that. When we're reading from the Old Testament, I think sometimes it's really easy to feel like, man, the Old Testament, that was just these guys and these stories and these, all this, you know, the law and works and all of those kind of things. And we forget when we disconnect our heart, we forget that these are our brothers and sisters. We forget that we're reading about our own lineage. If you're a disciple, 
This is our lineage as well, all right? This means something to us. Um, our hearts should be connected the same way as if we were to go through a photo album and look at our children and nephews and aunts and uncles and cousins. There's a heart connection, and it's supposed to be this way as well. I think far too often we read the Bible and we disconnect our heart completely, and we forget th this is the family. This is the family to us all in the kingdom of God here. Um, so as we're, um, as, as we're starting to read this, here's what we have going on. First of all, it tells us the time frame during the time of the judges. When was that? This is really important. You may go, Keith, I don't need to know these dates. I don't need to know. It doesn't matter how I read. It does, though, because um, we're not reading about fictional dates and fictional places. We're not reading about places that didn't exist and people that didn't exist. We're actually reading about real people in real places at real times that we can go back. We can see these. So during the time of the judges, so if you're familiar at all, and if you're not, I'm going to encourage you to become familiar with the history of Israel. Um, they were enslaved in Egypt. Um, God came and saved them. Most people are familiar with Moses bringing them out. The Red Sea parted. He brings them up to the promised land that he's giving them 40 years later after that, okay? He gives them the promised land. And if you have a map and you can open up, if, you, if your Bible has a map, I would encourage you to become uh, very handy with maps to get an idea of where are we talking about in the world here. Um, so if you can envision or if you can see on a map, you know, you had the Israelites that were down in Egypt and they were enslaved and then they were, they were brought up across the Red Sea north, okay? And um, God ultimately brought them into the promised land. They crossed over the Jordan River. Now, here's a couple of geographical landmarks that are fairly easy to keep in mind. When you're thinking of Israel, all right, the country of Israel, you have the Dead Sea down in the southern end, and you have the Sea of Galilee up towards the top, and there's the Jordan River that connects them, okay? God brought his people across the Jordan River into this promised land that he gave them. When they were, after 30 or 40 years of, of taking towns and making towns and setting up shop in the promised land, Israel began to be ruled by judges. Why was that? Joshua had died. So Moses had passed the torch onto Joshua to lead the people. Joshua passed away. The people were like, what do we do now? We don't know really what to do. And so everybody just did their own thing, okay? And so all the different tribes and all the people, there was no king. What did that mean is there was no ultimate authority that was guiding them, okay? And I think this is really important to keep in mind is we aren't talking about even the, the essence of a worldly leader here. We're not talking even about church leaders or something like that. We're talking about the king, King Jesus. We're talking about the father who is the king. Is they had, they had lost sight of their anchoring point with their king, God, and everything was in chaos. So the time of the judges was about 300 years and you see, again, this cycle of devastating sin and rebellion. Um, if you haven't read it, if they made a movie out of the book of Judges, it would be, I mean, you'd need a code to get past your, your filter because it would just, it's rated R and above, man. I mean, it gets pretty real. It's exciting. Uh, but this is where we are in the time of Judges. 
there was a famine in the land, okay? And just to give you a little marking point if you're familiar with Judges, many people believe that this story of Ruth is taking place the same time as Gideon was a judge, all right? And if you remember, um, at that point, the Midianites had, um, had, had been ruling Israel and had been stealing their crops. So there was this intense famine going on, right? And so right there in verse 1, we paint a picture about where is this taking place, when is this taking place, the time of Judges in the land. Uh, uh, there was a famine in the land. They're up in Bethlehem. So again, just getting a picture of what am I talking about here? If there's Israel and I'm looking over here at the Dead Sea, if I go to the northernmost point of the Dead Sea and I cut across about 20 miles to the west, um, there you go with Bethlehem. This is where these guys were from. And I think we're going to miss out on some things if we don't look at what are these names all about. Sometimes we name our children particular names because the names do mean something. Uh, but really, names in our society today don't carry near the weight as they did at this time. And so I think it's really important to look at this is Naomi and Elimelech were married. There was a famine all right, they decided, listen, we're in Bethlehem. We need to go find some food. They go to Moab, okay? Moab is just on the um, eastern side of the Dead Sea, all right? So they cruise on over there. And so it's important to know that Naomi's name means pleasant. Isn't that great? Naomi, pleasant. That'd be great to have that name if you're a lady, for sure. Um, Elimelech's name is great as well. My God is king. That's what Elimelech means, all right? And so understand, in the, in the time they're living in, a lot of chaos, a lot of disorder. Everyone's kind of doing their own thing. There's a, there's a famine. Everything's thrown off, right? He's taking the family. He's walking them, you know, many, 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 many miles to Moab, okay? So can you imagine your family going through this? But we get another little glimpse of the times by what they name their children, all right? So these names right here, Elimelech and Naomi, they name their children Malon and Chilion, all right? And what that means is failing and weak, all right? How would you like that name? Your parents, can you imagine when these children are born, what mental place you needed to be in to say, honey, just name that kid failing. Just, just name that kid weak. All right, could you imagine having that name and then living with that name? All right, can you imagine just the headspace that the family was in, okay? Um, and so you have these folks, they go up through uh, Moab. And um, so here's what's important to know about Moab, all right? And we're just kind of building this case. It make, it's going to make such a difference moving forward because we have to get an idea of what was the relationship between Moab and Israel, as an Israelite, why did it matter that they went to Moab? What was the history? And there was a lot of history, okay? So the Moabites, the people, um, actually began. We know when their line started, and it was back in Genesis 19, um, it was a child of incest. So um, Lot, you had Abraham's nephew Lot, um, and his daughter, his two daughters actually got him drunk, and were impregnated by him, and one of the children uh, was Moab, okay? So all of a sudden, you have um, this group of people. Where did they come from? They were a product of 
incest. They were a product of worldliness, all right? So this was an entirely different group of people, okay? Where else do you have it? Um, Numbers chapter 25, uh, we run into Moab because Moab was actually ruling Israel, all right? So so Moab was... uh, I'm sorry, at Numbers 25, that Moab was not ruling Israel. Uh, Moab was enticing um, the Israelites to come and commit sexual immorality. All right. And so as the Israelites were coming up, uh, going towards the promised land, um, one of the things that, uh, that they ran into was, were, were the Moabites and the Midianites, and they were tempting the guys, like, come and have sexual relations with us. All right. And if you remember, there's a really interesting story in Numbers chapter 25. It's where Phineas comes in and he actually stabs two people um, to stop this whole thing, okay? And so you had the Moabites and the Midianites. So I want you to just think about this as, you know, from a historical perspective. As an Israelite, you would have known these stories. You would have known, wow, these were groups of folks. Um, Balaam was enticed. He, he wanted to, to, uh, to entice these guys, okay? So you have Numbers 25, um, you have uh, the Moabites and the Midianites, and then in Judges 3, okay, uh, it's when Moab ruled Israel for 18 years, okay, and there's a really cool story. I'm not going to read it. You go back and read it, uh, but Moab rules Israel for 18 years. The king of, uh, of Moab is this big old fat guy, and the judge that kills him from Israel is a left-handed dude. He actually says, no, this left-handed guy who stabs him in the belly, and the whole knife, the whole sword gets lost in his fatness. It's a great story. Go back and read it on your own. But there's history. Why am I saying all this? Is the Israelites and the Moabites, that history is not good, okay? In fact, um, later on in Deuteronomy, the, um, uh, uh, the Israelites were told, don't ever let the Moabites in the assembly, all right, because, because when the Israelites needed help, the Moabites did not help. In fact, the Moabites hurt them on their way up to the promised land. So there was this distinct history going on here. Um, and so anyway, that gives us a little bit of a background of what's going on. And now you have this lady. And one of the things I would encourage you to do is even as you read this is learn to tell the story. Learn to get an idea and a picture in your mind. Get an idea of what would your family be thinking if you had lived in these times. Um, What was the big deal about all of this? As we read the book of Ruth, please keep in mind, it's a historical narrative. Why does that matter? Uh, Because the writer is simply telling us what happened. Okay, So he's not telling us if something was good or bad, right or wrong necessarily. He's just giving us historically, here's what happened. So as we read this and we understand the story, you can picture Elimelech and Naomi and they've got a couple of kids and they're in Moab because there's a famine and they're in Moab for 10 years. And over those years, uh, Naomi loses her husband and both of her sons die. And so here you have a lady who left her country, left her people during a time of famine. Now she's alone with these two young ladies who are not Israelites, all right? These are Moabite women. And again, you know, in our minds, we get locked in to, oh my goodness, well, you know what that must have meant? That these guys went and they married, they intermarried with these Moabites and that's wrong. Right or wrong, all he's saying is they married these women, okay? Orpah and Ruth. And it got to a place where Naomi heard 
listen, there's food back in my land. I can go back to Bethlehem. And so she gathers up her daughters-in-law and they start walking and she tells them, you know, and you got to put yourself into her mindset is you have two young ladies who are widows and she's telling them, go back to your own home. All right. For you to come to Israel is going to be so difficult because not only are you a widow, but you're a foreigner. Okay. They're not going to probably treat you well. Go home, you know, get a new husband, start a new life. So Naomi just has this, um, this, this heart to make sure that her daughters-in-law are helped out. Okay. And all the while, can you imagine? And we're told in this narrative as well, that Naomi is becoming embittered. All right, Naomi's looking um, at her life. In fact, she said, you know, God had embittered her that when she came to Moab, she was full, right? She had family. The people that mattered most to her were together. And now she's coming back into Bethlehem empty. She's embittered. She's trying to take care of her daughters-in-law, but she's hurting intensely, right? So, we're going to jump in and we're going we're gonna to look down here into verse 14 of Ruth chapter 1. Um, and as, as, as Naomi is trying to tell her daughters-in-law, guys, go, please. I'm heading back to my people. Uh, they wept loudly. And again, we've got to connect our heart to this. I mean, what a heartbreaking scene of a family um, that is together and then not together. Like she's, she's encouraging them, you, you need to go. And they both wept loudly, which tells you a little bit about their relationship with Ruth. Um, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, okay? I mean, so much is spoken right there, really without a ton of words, of Ruth and her relationship with Naomi. Um, and Naomi says, look, Ruth, look, your sister-in-law, she's gone back. Follow your sister-in-law. And then Ruth is like, stop right now, okay? And we've got to think about this, is you have Ruth who's not an Israelite, um, uh, the, the Moabites have their own gods, and they're pretty rotten, okay? You have Baal, there's Molech in certain instances, okay? And if you're familiar with those, I mean, there's a lot of really rotten things that go on from even offering up your child into a fire for these false gods. There's a lot of mess here, okay? And so Ruth, this is where she comes from. These are her roots, right? And then she married this Israelite boy, and loves the family clearly and is very close to Ruth. And Naomi is, I'm sorry, very close to Naomi. And Naomi's telling her, go home, please go home. Go back to your gods. Go back and do this. And Ruth says, hold on, stop a minute. Stop persuading me. And this is what she says, wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die. And there I'll be buried. May Yahweh punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. That's a powerful section right there. All right. Can you imagine Ruth saying that? She's weeping. She's clinging. She's like, stop, Naomi. Stop trying to get me to leave you. I'm coming to you. And we get a little, there's just a little glimpse right here. Okay. You see this loyalty that, Na or that Ruth has for Naomi. Right? You see this loyalty here, and it's expressed in a way that as time goes on, when you look at this, you get this little glimpse of, of what faith should look like. Okay? Sometimes we even we, we disconnect faith emotionally sometimes. We just think, no, faith, just trust, just trust, just trust. Yes, absolutely. 
But along with that is a loyalty and loyalty is a real heart thing, right? Is this loyalty. And this ultimately is what Jesus essentially teaches his disciples that this is what we should be like is this idea of wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people, right? Is You see this little kind of glimpse at a beginning coming from this loyal young lady who's like your God, Ruth. Apparently, she's gotten to know her. She's gotten to know Yahweh, I mean. And she's saying, that's the God I want. And in fact, that God should punish me if I don't go through with this, okay? And so you have this young lady she is, um, she's really uh, such an amazing amount of loyalty, all right? Now, here's what's fascinating about this, okay? If you're looking big picture, again, let's zoom out a little bit. You have God trying to save his people, and now you have a period of time of such chaos and such disorder and such sin, okay? It would be easy for anyone, and, and I think we can relate to this, to look at those times and say, God has failed, All right? This is not gonna work. There's no way God is going to make it through this. There's no way there's too much evil. There's too much, there's too much, there's too many people not wanting to follow God. There's too many people, there's not enough people to turn this ship around, okay? And that would have been the normal mindset. That's our mindset oftentimes. We, we get so locked in to deciding how God works. He's got to work with this many people. He's got to work with this type of people. He's got to have these kind of leaders. He's got to have these kind of followers. And we have this idea. I mean, we write books about it. We preach sermons about it, about how God wants this specific type and this specific, because that's, we have an idea of how God is going to move forward. All right. And now here's what God says. No, 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 no. Um, here, here's the deal. There's this little girl, Ruth, in Moab. And you want to know what? She's going to come and be a part of my story now. She's this little girl who, you want to know what? I see how loyal she is to Naomi. I see how loyal she is. I see that inkling of faith. I see that idea of this walking towards Yahweh. I see these things, okay? And he's like, that. I'm going to use her her loyalty, her faithfulness, she's going to become a part of my story, okay? That should be really encouraging for us, okay? Because again, God is going, I'm not even going to my own people. I'm finding essentially my people's enemy, my people's nemesis. And this, this young lady is going to come in and uh, she's going to help accomplish my purpose, okay? Now, here's what I want us to keep in mind. Sometimes we we can see something like this and say, man, look at how God worked even in chaos and disorder. Look at how God worked. He must do that all the time. And for sure he does, but here's where we go a little bit sideways, okay? We think when things are chaotic and crazy and off the chain and everything is all messed up, we think God will work to make our lives good. God will work to make our dreams come true. God will work, right, in order to make our lives better. All right, his point here, as he called out, as, as, as Ruth was coming into Israel, he wasn't saying, okay, now I'm gonna make Ruth's life and all of her dreams come true. He's saying, I can use her 
to accomplish my ultimate purpose. All right. And that's what God is going to do. God is going to take chaos and God is going to take disorder and God is going to take me and you that shouldn't even be a part of this story and say, you want to know what? I can use them for my purpose. All right. And so, um, so th- there's this side of it. Another thing I want to dig into a little bit um, is Ruth's character, her decision. What we get to know about Ruth a little bit. Ruth made a decision that quite honestly wasn't the best for her. What do I mean by that? Um, For Ruth to decide, no, I'm going to leave my people. I'm going to leave what's always been comfortable. I'm going to leave what I thought was always right. I'm I'm going to leave those. I'm going to go to Israel where I'm not even sure. I'm not sure how the people are going to even treat me. How are they going to treat me as uh, as a young lady and as a widow? And how are they going to treat me? I'm here with Naomi. And am I going to be seen? All right, there's this sacrificial quality to her decision. Because remember, Naomi is telling her, it's going to be better for you. Go and get married to one of your own people, please. It's going to be too hard coming to me. All right. Think about our decision-making process. And it's very interesting how God seems to honor sacrificiality. That that is such a huge part of discipleship, and I think it's so easy to forget. We want to make decisions where the decisions prosper us, where the decisions look Christian enough, but they prosper us as well. Ruth is saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure. I'm willing to sacrifice to be with Naomi. I'm willing to give this up. Sometimes this even happens in Christianity. We grow up with a very, a lot of people, I I was this way. I grew up with this very watered down, self-righteous, hypocritical view of following Jesus, this very worldly view. And what's interesting, as I started learning about what it meant to be a disciple, when I started really getting this idea of who Jesus is, When I got this idea of this story, God's story that he's including me and you in, I I got really, really scared to leave what I knew, to leave behind the nominal Christianity, to leave behind the, the Christianity that made me feel so safe and secure. And again, I just want to encourage you as we read this, that we get to see Ruth and she is sacrificial and unselfish. You know, it would have been better even for her to say, yeah, I am young. I am going to go home. I am going to have another husband and have family. But this unselfish quality and this sacrificial quality, I think, really is a principle that should call to our hearts, too, as we make these decisions, okay? What else are we learning here? So um, let's go ahead and pick this up here again in Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to see right down here in verse 18, get another idea. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? All right. It's been a number of years. All right. And now here comes a a, a woman and she has another young lady with her. But there's no husband and there's no kids. And they're like, could that be Naomi? This is so exciting. There are people coming back who left because of the famine. Is is that Naomi? And and can you imagine? You just have to picture road-weary travelers 
Okay, this isn't, you know, they're not pulling off the side of the road in a sedan or an SUV. They've been walking. They've been walking most likely around the north end of the Dead Sea, across the Jordan River, and another 20 miles to Bethlehem, okay? They're tired. They're weary. They've had, can you think of the time they've had just to think about the decisions they're making and what's about to come ahead? And they show up in the village, and everyone is excited. They said, is that Naomi? Naomi, is that you? And, and, and Naomi looks up, and she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. All right, again, we, we can't disconnect our heart from this. Could you imagine sitting there and this lady and she's coming in and you know her and you knew her and her name was Pleasant and her husband's name was God is King and they're back after years and years and years. She said, please don't call me Pleasant. Please don't call me that. Call me Bitter. Call me Mara, okay? What's good news about this? Every one of us have walked in her shoes to some degree. Okay. Now, what do I say? Is everybody's situation exactly the same? Do some people have it worse than other people? Absolutely. I think we can all connect. If you can't connect with this on an emotional level to where you have just been cruising and walking through life um, without understanding this, at some point life will become really hard and really tough. And everything inside of me and you is going to say, I'm just bitter. I, I just look at what's happened. All right. She goes on and she said, you know, uh, I went away full in verse 21. She said, man, uh, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. All right. I think a lot of us can, you, you, there's been a time in your life and maybe the time is like right now and you're going, yeah, I get that. I get that. Or, you don't, don't call me by my name. Uh, man, I was full. Now I'm empty. Man, God has embittered me. You know, she's, she's just feeling it, okay? And she says, please don't do it. What's the good news there? Here's what we see um, throughout the Bible, specifically um, in this book. We see God's providence. All right, what does that mean? It simply means that God has provided something, all right? And so you take this um, lady, you take Naomi, and clearly, you know, when she left, what was the family going through? Well, obviously a famine. Were they struggling a little bit spiritually? Well, I think we get an idea when her, when her sons married Moabite women. There wasn't anybody that would encourage them to do that. There isn't anybody that would say that was a good idea. So what was the state of their spiritual life? I don't know. It probably wasn't like completely, you know, obedient and zealous. Okay. She, it wasn't like she was tearing it up spiritually. And then to watch her husband die and her two sons die and to come back and to say, I've just come back empty, except God provided someone for her. Okay. God provided Ruth. Right? Could you imagine having a, a, somebody like Ruth? Could you have an, imagine having a friend that was like, I'm with you. I'm with you no matter where you go. I'm with you. you me and you are together. Even though we're not the same, we're together. Even though we're different na from different nations, we're, um, e even though we're from different nations, man, we are going to be together, all right? Uh, and so it's this idea of God um, saying, I'm, gonna, I'm going to take unlikely people. I'm going to take this foreign girl, and I'm going to use her for my purpose. I'm going to take this woman, this Israelite woman, who is bitter and tired and just feeling it, and I'm going to give her this loyal, faithful young lady, Ruth, and they're going to work through this, okay? 
What's one of the last things I want you to take away? Is that in God's story, decisions matter, right? In God's story, we don't get to decide, am I, am I the person he can use? Because God will use the most unlikely, all right? Um, the decisions we make today and tomorrow and weeks and months ago, they're a part of this story as well. There will be repercussions, both good and bad, for them. Um, here's what I want us to, to be left with. Remember, God's purpose, although we're reading about Ruth, okay, and way back when, way back in, in 1300 B.C., God's purpose is still the same. It's exactly the same as God. This story is going to culminate in people being eternally, God's people being with him for eternity. Okay? Our purpose is still the same. God's story is still being written. It's up to us to look at this and go, man, how am I going to take this? Is Ruth going to inspire me? And this is just the beginning. We're just right at the tip of the iceberg. The next three chapters are absolutely amazing. 